Again, if you've been with us and if you have not, one way or the other, just by way of reminder, Ecclesiastes is certainly probably not a Bible book that would be good for trying to develop Christian doctrine because we remember that the context in which Solomon is speaking these things to us, certainly the Holy Spirit, again, directing his words, giving us a record of Scripture that belongs in the canon of God's Word, but to understand properly that Solomon is basically giving to us his recorded record as the preacher of kind of his, if you could say, research project as he has spent time observing and investigating life under this sun apart from God and what life is like trying to find purpose or meaning or value or some sense of fulfillment apart from an eternal awareness and apart from a relationship with God, if we just do human existence on this earth, on the horizontal level, under the sun, without really giving any attention to that there is something on the other side of the sun, the S-U-N, the physical sun, and that's, of course, the, the Son of God and the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit and the reality that there is an eternity. And God has put, as Solomon, remember, said back in chapter 3, God's put eternity in our hearts, uh, he's put that within us as human beings. Uh, the, the human dilemma, it seems, is struggling with, as Solomon described, trying everything else to fulfill ourselves, trying to find meaning, trying to find for purpose, trying to find satisfaction, whether it's pursuing it in you know, intellectual things or in career paths or in entertainment or in fulfilling our human and carnal desires and all the other things, relationships, we kind of tend to spend a good portion of our lives uh, trying to put sort of a, a round peg in a square hole. The Bible tells us that we've been created with a God-shaped void, a, a, a part of our life that in a sense was uniquely designed to have meaningful relationship with God as our creator but sadly, we in our confusion and our deception spend a good portion of our time, many of us, uh, trying to, in a sense, fill that void that only God can fill in our life to give us true purpose and fulfillment and meaning in this earthly journey by having an experience with God and a relationship with God. And we try and fill that with so many other things. Uh, and Solomon here, in some ways, is rehearsing for us, giving us his record of what that is like when we search for meaning, when we search for purpose under this sun without including God or having an awareness or considering the eternal dimension beyond death. And Solomon, of course, keeps coming back to this conclusion that it's all vain and that it's frustrating and it's confusing and in many ways you know, causes a lot of disillusionment to us as human beings and how he keeps coming back to this concept of vanity of vanities. Everything is vain. Everything seems so meaningless and how frustrating life can be when we remove God from human existence. So again, important to remember as we're looking through this, a lot of the things that Solomon says, we have to remember he's saying it, and, and as he kind of progresses on, he starts to become very kind of almost cynical in his speech and, and almost kind of jaded in his attitude. But nonetheless, in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit works through that, and we do still get some good advice, just like Solomon gave us lots of great advice in the Proverbs and the little nuggets of wisdom that are so helpful to us. Uh, there indeed are things that are said within this as the Holy Spirit's directing his words still nonetheless as he's expressing these things. 
even in his frustration, even in kind of a jaded or cynical attitude in his own humanity, that still give us some good advice that we can take to ourselves here and there. But important to realize the kind of the perspective that he's writing from. Again, chapter 9, verse 1 tells us, Solomon says, For I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all. That the righteous, the man living right before God, the man living in right relationship with God, and the wise, that is someone who's acknowledged God, because the Bible says it's the fool who says in his heart there is no God. So he's referring to those who are living in right relationship with God. They're living right before God. They're living in right relationship with fellow man. They're living wisely. That is, they're letting the wisdom of God direct their choices and their behaviors He says, and their works are in the hand of God. Now, Solomon here, as he evaluates the lives of those living right and those being wise. So that's pretty good there. Those who are trying to live right before God, they're trying to just, let's say, live right morally, even if they're not trying to serve God. They're just trying to be ethical people. They're trying to live right. Those who are being wise, he realized that even living right and being wise at the end of the day is never a complete guarantee because he says, I've come to realize that our works ultimately are in the hand of God. And the idea that Solomon's trying to convey in his observation is he realized that God still controls the outcome of everything ultimately. That it's the hand of God that will always be the final determining factor in what unfolds or what doesn't unfold and recognizing the sovereignty of God. And it's almost as if Solomon here in some ways in his own human frustration, saying even if we do wisely, even if we pursue what's right, we always still have to rely that God will work things out for us ultimately, that our works are ultimately going to be determined by what the hand of God does in the deciding factor and what will unfold. And since we don't understand, as Solomon has mentioned so many times, why these things happen this way and why this turns out that way, and he's talked about that to a great extent. He'll kind of come back to that idea again. Notice he says there at the end of verse one, people know neither love, that is that they're loved or understanding love, nor hatred that they're hated and that someone's doing something harmful to them by anything that they see before them. Now, potentially before them in the sense of talking about just living life by observing circumstances. And a lot of times we do that as human beings And that can be a very confusing process to interpreting things. That if we try and interpret life by circumstances, that is a real quick way to start getting very confused in our lives. Or it could be the idea of before them as far as what will unfold in the future. It's almost as if we sense Solomon saying here, since we don't understand everything, it's hard for us as human beings to always make proper judgments because we don't know if love and welcoming favor awaits us in the future, hey, I did what's right and I did what's wise. People will probably love me for that. Well, Jesus did what was right and Jesus always did what was wise. But did people always love Jesus? Many times people rejected Jesus. Many times people mistreated Jesus. Many times Jesus' wise, righteous life drew hatred and drew animosity. And that would seem contradictory to human reasoning. So again, he says, what's happening circumstantially, we don't know if love and welcoming favor will await us when we do the right thing and when we do what's wise. 
Or we don't know if maybe sometimes we do the right thing and we do what's wise, but nonetheless, we end up being hated or we end up experiencing rejection. He says, we can trust and we must accept this one thing. All of our works, they're in the hand of God. And God may allow us to be loved and favorably treated and blessed and rewarded for our right and wise choices. Or it may be the hand of God that determines, you know what, in this situation, just like my son, though you did what was right and though you did what was wise, I'm going to let you experience rejection. I'm going to let you experience mistreatment. I'm going to let you experience failure or hardship or difficulty. And again, if we try and interpret God's love for us, we're wondering, does God hate me because of what's unfolding circumstantially? We're going to get very confused if we're just trying to use circumstantial interpretation of what's going on around us. We need to be careful that we don't just interpret such things by circumstances, good or bad, as an indication of God loves us. The New Testament tells us exactly how we interpret if God loves us. Every time the love of God is referred to in the New Testament, it's always in direct connection to what? to the cross of Jesus Christ, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. In this we know love, that God laid down his life for us through his son, 1 John. Again, so whenever the Bible seeks to draw our attention to anchor us in this awareness of, does God love me? Or does God hate me or something? Why is it? it always puts our attention not on circumstances, not on feelings, not on whether something succeeded or failed. If I was loved and appreciated or hated and rejected, it always puts it on one thing, look at the cross. Because that's always the clearest testimony. If I was an absolute failure from the start... <laughs> And I did nothing but reject God and live foolishly and unwisely and not love God. And he did that for me through Jesus. I don't have to wrestle if he loves me. I can know that he loves me. And, and despite how circumstances look, I don't have to be confused by that. And so we can keep our hearts rooted in that. And here Solomon realized how ultimately the, the hand of God is really the determining factor. He's going to say later on, even those times when we think it should work out in one way and it doesn't, Sometimes there's just no explanation to that on a human level that we can really wrap our heads around. Verse two, he says, all things come alike to all. And here's again where you, you kind of sense a little bit of his cynicism in his spirit in the way that he's talking. Look what he says. One event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath, as he who fears an oath. This is an evil, he says, and all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. He sounds pretty depressed, doesn't he? Solomon says, you know, I become so frustrated sometimes because he says, it seems like, and it's almost as if that's how Solomon probably should have interjected that. It seems like that whether he says there someone is righteous, good, they live a clean life, they sacrifice, they do what's good, they take an oath and they keep it, that the same exact things tend to happen in their lives as happen to people, he says, at times, who live wicked 
and they're unclean and they don't sacrifice. The idea is they're selfish and self-indulgent and they're bad in their behavior and they're sinful in their conduct and they don't keep their oaths and they break their promises to everybody. And Solomon says, this is a grievous evil done under the sun. It seems like that one event ultimately ends up happening to all. And again, we can't always process that sometimes. And we don't always have an explanation for that other than the fact that this is still earth. And God hasn't settled out accounts with humanity yet at this point, and we can't expect things to always make sense in regards to, well, why when I did all the right things, did things go wrong? And why when they did all the wrong things, does it seem like everything's going right? Remember, that was uh, Asaph's struggle in Psalm 73 when he was wrestling. And the only thing that gave Asaph perspective, do you remember what it was? Was when he went where? Into the house of the Lord. When he went into the house of God and he put his eyes on God and he began to worship a few songs and began, to, and, and again, just that perspective came back into being and he, and he was able to kind of process that earthly confusion, which we all wrestle with at time to time, whether it's in our own life, whether it's observing others, it's coming into God's house. You know, they've done studies. And of course, many of them happened you know, during the time of the pandemic and all that too. And some are starting to come out now how much less people make mention of depression and anxiety issues and so on and so forth and mental disorders who say that they regularly go to the house of God for worship. How interesting that those who routinely spend time in God's house, how they, they acknowledge a lot lower percentage of struggles with depression and anxiety and mental disorders and mental illnesses as compared to those who don't and say they struggle anymore. And you know, to me, that makes total sense. That makes total sense because when we come into the house of God, we experience his presence. We're with like-minded people. We worship. We put our attention on the Lord. We have something to celebrate and think about that's good after all the horrible things that are making us discouraged in the world. And we hear something that's true and righteous and wholesome that gives us clarity and hope and proper perspective in our lives. And it just helps us sort through all the struggles like Solomon's describing here where we're going, Lord, this... This doesn't make sense. And, and all of a sudden, we come into God's house, and it's amazing how he helps us because we, too, like Solomon at times, struggle with these you know, kind of contradictory things in our minds that we see unfolding. He says, verse 3, going on, Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Well, that's a true statement for certain. Not just evil, but the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil madness, the idea is insanity, craziness, madness, he says, is in their hearts while they live, and then after that, they go to the dead. After that, they die. They live a crazy, insane life, full of evil, <laughs> and then after that, they die. Verse 4, he says, but for him who is joined to all the living, the idea is who is still alive among the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, what Solomon's basically describing here in our verses in front of us, uh, again, is his point that those who are still living, that despite their status in life, the very fact that they are still living does give to them one advantage, and really that is this, 
is that the one hope a living person has that a dead person no longer possesses is they still have the power to change. They still have the power to change. And again, he just talked about how when humanity's living, they're, they're full of evil in their hearts and they're, they're just, they're human beings, they can go into a state of madness. Our minds are so corrupted and so broken by sin. And he says, but yet, as he uses this analogy, the living dog is in a better place than the dead lion. Now understand that's kind of a, you know, a, a poetic inference. And in some ways that's confusing for us to grasp because in today's day and age, we have cats and dogs and we utilize them as pets, right? In that day and age, the dog was like the lowest of the low. They were scavengers. People did not utilize dogs as pets. They hated dogs. Dogs were despised. They were scavengers who ravaged around and so on. They were not utilized domestically as pets. So the dog would be like the lowest of low in the animal chain, like a scavenger, you know, rabid dog. And the lion is what? Right? King of the forest. So the lion seems like it's got this really exalted status position where, where it's the, the most powerful authoritative animal. And the dog is like the lowest of low as far as its status. And Solomon says, just like a living dog has a better status than the dead king of the forest, he says in the same way, the idea is even if the status of your life is you would say, man, I feel like I'm living a dog's life. I feel like I get treated like a dog. And, and I mean, I just, I feel like I'm living a dog eat dog life. And he says, but look, here's one thing. If you're still alive, the one benefit you have of still being alive is people who are alive still have the power and the freedom to change. Once you die, especially if you die in the wrong condition, it's decided forever. Life's done. Now, if you decided right for Jesus Christ, then that's a whole other thing. We have a blessed hope and an eternal kingdom. But again, if we're talking about life under the sun, living out human experience, once a person dies, if they die in their madness, full of evil, their life's decided forever. It doesn't matter if they lived like the king of the forest the whole time they were here on this earth. Remember, Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Lives like king of the forest. And he has authority and power and control, and he can devour and do whatever he wants like the king of the forest. But once he dies like a dead lion... He's sealed his eternal fate in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Where someone who may be living a dog-eat-dog dog and being treated like a dog, maybe because they're a Christian and they're a follower of Jesus, or just someone who's living a very difficult life, but they still have breath in their lungs like a living dog, they still have the opportunity to still make a change or a decision if they're not right with God yet. They still have that opportunity. One of the advantages that does exist in human experience is there's always hope to change while we're still alive. This is why suicide is so foolish. You're cutting off all your opportunity to change your life. People commit suicide because they want their life to change and they, they as a wrong coping mechanism, they make a poor decision and they end their life. Well, you just, you just, change, you just sealed your, your fate there forever. If you continue to endure and to live on, even if you're living like a dog, you can still exercise decisions to overcome and experience change. And there's always hope as we continue to live and continue to carry on. He says, verse five, for the living know that they will die. That is one awareness. Life is coming to an end. But the dead, he says, and again, he's kind of picking up on this idea now, driving, the dead know nothing. The idea is their, their human existence, their human experience is over. 
and they have no reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And again, how true that is, how quickly so often, you know, the people who seek to live so much to try and make a name for themselves on this planet, we crave attention and approval and and he's going to talk about a man later on who miraculously saved the city by his great wisdom, and they just forgot about him right away. And so here he says their, their memory so often is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Never more will they have a share, the idea is a part or an experience, in anything done under the sun. So what he's basically describing here in verses 5 and 6 is how we only have opportunity to live out our life on this planet under the sun one time and for a short season. And not to say that we all don't want to graduate and get on to the next phase, right? I mean, Paul says to, to be with Christ is far better, and we understand that. But God does give us a season. He gives us a journey on this planet that we are to live out in our human existence. And understand, there are certain things that we can only do while we're on this earth. You can only lead a person to Christ while you're on this planet. That's an opportunity that only exists while on this earth. You have no part, I have no part, we have no share in that. There are certain things that we can do while we're on this earth, and that opportunity, like when someone dies, he says, that's lost forever. Once death happens, the, the opportunities and things that we can do while being alive on the earth, those opportunities disappear forever. New ones come if we're going to be in heaven with the Lord. Well, the human opportunities to serve the Lord in some of the ways that we have privilege to do, we don't have any opportunity to do anymore. And it's almost as if you can sense Solomon saying here in his wording, if there are things that you need to do now, get them done. Because life's going to end. And you don't know when it's going to end. And I don't know when it's going to end. What we do know is that every life is coming to an end, and whether it's getting right with God, Solomon would say, look, there's not an opportunity to get right with God after you die. The time to get right with God is to get right with God before you die. If there's something that God is asking you to do, whether it's to make something right or to step out and do something for the Lord or to accomplish something, to recognize that can't happen once your life ends, now's the time to do those things. And that we wouldn't delay but recognize this point that Solomon's conveying is the time to do things in this life is now because there's no guarantee that tomorrow's coming, next week, next month is coming, and that we shouldn't live presumptuously like that, but to recognize those things done under the sun. Once our life ends, certain opportunities that we have now, they don't exist anymore because a change has happened, a transition where we're now into the eternal dimension, of course, one way or the other, depending upon where we are in relationship with Christ. Now, in light of some of these ideas and the fact that life is coming to an end, that life is short, the brevity of life, he's trying to you know, remind us of our mortality and no assurances and don't end up with the regrets, live life now. Solomon starts to give in verse 7 here and on some input, though again, from a somewhat of a jaded and a cynical mindset that is kind of a little bit of the attitude he has. But nonetheless, as I said earlier, there's still some really worthwhile advice that he mentions in some of these next verses to us. The first thing he mentions to us, look at it there in verse 7. He says, in light of this reality, life is short. We've got to live life now before the opportunity is gone. He says, first of all, learn how to enjoy life. 
Look what he says in verse 7 there. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your work. So Solomon says, since life is short, since we only get one shot at this life, since we don't know when that life is coming to a closure, Solomon says one of the things that would be wise to do is just learn how to enjoy life, the simple things of life, to enjoy a meal, to be able to just you know have some degree of fulfillment, enjoy the simple pleasures as we talked about before, just celebrating happy times, rejoicing in the simple blessings of God of everyday life and understanding and appreciating God's goodness that he's given us certain earthly pleasures to enjoy and that we would live in a sense of not striving and always worrying if we've earned God's acceptance or if God's approval of us. Look, God loves you and if you're in relationship with Christ, he's already in approval of you. The Bible says we're accepted in the beloved and we don't have to work, work, work and feel that we have to spend our whole life miserable, guilty, and fearful that we got to work to maintain God's love or God's approval that we can know, look, God, God, God's accepted us as the result of what he's done for us and his son. And we don't have to constantly earn God's acceptance by performing to a certain degree. Solomon says we can enjoy life and we should enjoy life because we don't know when life's going to come to a close. Secondly, he says, verse eight, and let your garments always be white. And let your head lack no oil. So again, he says in verse 7, learn how to enjoy life. Verse 8, he says, here's another wise thought. Seek to live in right relationship with God. Seek to live in right relationship with God. He says, let your garments always be right, white and your head lack no oil. Now, again, in a physical context, white garments spoke of purity. If your garments were white, they were clean, those were the garments you would wear again, whether to a wedding or to a celebration as compared to your garments being defiled or dirty or stained. So the white garment speaks of living in a clean way and in a spiritual sense of living in cleanliness, not being stained, living a clean life morally before the Lord. And that that would be something that we would aspire to, not engaging in activities or behaviors that are sinful or defile you personally. We realize, look, I don't know when life's coming to a close. And because of that, I don't want to meet the Lord with stains on my garment. I, I want to have a clean life when I meet the Lord. I want to live before the Lord with a clean life, with no stains and no guilt and no regrets, living in right relationship with him routinely. And then, of course, in verse 80, he also says, and let your head lack no oil. And oil, again, was often put upon a person, whether to anoint them for a position, a king, a priest. It also was just done as a kind of a way of refreshing to make your face shine. They would utilize oils in that way. But we know, of course, oil in the Old Testament particularly is an idiom of what? The Holy Spirit. So as we think about what he's describing here in living in right relationship with God, what are two ways to live in right relationship with God? To seek to live a clean and a pure life and to live a life where our head lacks no oil, that is the anointing, the power of the Holy Spirit being upon us, living a spirit-filled life, where there's no lack of the Spirit's influence upon our life. Like Paul speaks about in Ephesians, where he talks about not being drunk with wine, but being filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not how much of the Holy Spirit you have, it's how much of you does the Holy Spirit have under his control and his influence? 
That's a spirit-filled life where the Spirit of God is upon you in power and He is influencing and controlling your life to a great degree. Rather than your human spirit directing your life, the Spirit of the Lord is upon you and that there's no lack of the oil of God's Spirit, again, that anointing of His power being upon our lives. A third thing he mentions in verse 9 of what we should take into consideration, knowing life's short and coming to a close, he says, live joyfully, and underline that word joyfully, enjoying, the idea is, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, he reminds us, which he has given you, indicating what? Did you find your spouse? No, you received your spouse. That's a right perspective towards marriage. Whenever I do premarital counseling, one of the passages, of course, I take couples through is Genesis chapter 2, and I always point out to them there God's paradigm, God's original design for marriage, and it says that God created Eve, and then it says God brought her to the man. And I always remind them, this is someone that God custom created for you. That should blow your mind of the value of your spouse, that God knit you together in your mother's womb but he also knew that one day he intended this person to be your spouse that he knew was best and that he custom created this person and he was knitting them together in their mother's womb saying, man, I know Tony's going to like blonde hair and big brown eyes and, 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 and this is what he's going to like. And, and, and he literally is custom creating a human being for your life partner as your spouse. And then it says, and God then brought her to the man. Again, Adam didn't go looking for her. Literally, God was involved bringing the two of their lives together, making them intersect. And the idea here is he says, this wife, which God has given you under the sun during your earthly journey, all your days of vanity in the midst of the empty life under the sun, that is your portion. What's your portion? It's what's sufficient for you. Your portion, your portion of food, it's what sustains you. It's what's sufficient. It's what God has given to you to partake of. And in the labor which you perform under the sun. So another reminder Solomon gives, certainly good advice in this. Since life is short, since life on earth is difficult and it can be empty and vain and hard, he says, look, whatever you're doing, he says, sincerely appreciate the spouse that God's given to you. Joyfully, thankfully, gratefully say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that I don't have to live this life alone. Thank you that you've given me this life partner this custom-created life partner, and Lord, I thank you for that. And, and how wonderful so many marriages could be if more people would actually appreciate and enjoy their marriages instead of enduring their marriages. And rather than looking as, I guess i got to endure life with you, I did say, till death do us part, and now they video weddings, so I guess I'm stuck. But instead, he says, no, live joyfully. He says, look, find ways to enjoy your marriage to the fullest extent. We should be finding ways to find incredible pleasure and enjoyment and fulfillment on all different levels through our marriage relationship. It's one of the simple, wonderful pleasures God has given to us in this vain existence, a life partner that you can do life with someone and be able to enjoy life with them, knowing one another. It's hard to navigate life alone. Isn't that what he said back in chapter 4? Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 4 when he said two are better than one, they have a good return for their work? 
And how much more wonderful to be able to find a spouse, to have a spouse, to you know, appreciate the spouse that God's given to us, and to enjoy our marriage relationships. And then verse 10, he says, And whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge nor wisdom in the grave where you are going. So again, he's just encouraging here, because life's short, because there's a limited window, he says, whatever you engage in doing, put all your effort into it and do it with excellence. Whatever you do under this earth, it may seem like it's a vain human existence, but you only get one shot to live on this earth. And he says, because of that, whatever your hand finds to do, whatever, that's a key word, whatever, do it with all your might. The idea is put all your effort into it, do everything with excellence, with thoroughness. Don't say, oh, well, what I do doesn't matter. It's, no, whatever you do. The New Testament tells us in a different way that whatever we do, we should do all to the glory of what? To God. And so whatever we have an opportunity to do, and again, Solomon in some ways is saying this is like, look, just you know, enjoy life, indulge life. And in some ways, again, in his cynicism, is there a part of Solomon kind of saying here, look, life's vain, it's meaningless, so whatever. Eat your dessert before you eat your dinner. And I mean, there's a part of that Solomon's saying here. Just whatever you do, just thoroughly fulfill yourself. But certainly there is great wisdom in the context, though it may not be exactly where Solomon's coming from, in the principle he's telling us here in verse 10, that whatever we do, we have more reason to do it purposely. We should be more incentivized of God's people, knowing eternity, knowing there's eternal rewards. Shouldn't we as Christians be the greatest workers, the most diligent students? Shouldn't ministry, the works we do for God, be more excellent and the house of God be run more excellent than any business, than any earthly thing? Because whatever we do, we do with excellence because we know there's eternal reward we know that God's evaluating, that God's standard matters, that God's being represented. And so here Solomon just encourages this giving of ourselves fully to whatever we do. Only certain opportunities, but he says, whatever you do, do it well. If you're going to do it, do it well with excellence in the way you go about it. Put your full heart into everything you do. He says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race, verse 11, is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. So here Solomon's referring to another frustration on this earth, and that Solomon witnessed, and you could say it this way, Solomon witnessed that things don't always work out as they should. And a lot of times, things on earth don't always work out the way that we might expect them to. That it would just seem like, and our expectations are, well, of course, that's going to happen that way. You see what he's saying there in verse 11? Look at it. He says, the race is not to the swift. In other words, what he's saying is, the fastest person doesn't always win every race. Is that not true? That guy's going to crush it, man. He is so fast. He is. He's the swiftest, fastest runner until he forgot to tie his shoelaces and he tripped 25 yards into the dash. Or he got his leg caught on the hurdle and now the second fastest guy or maybe three people fall and the fourth fastest guy wins the race and gets the gold medal. Wait, that's not the way it's... But, but sometimes the fastest person who should win doesn't win the race. He says sometimes 
The strongest person doesn't win every battle. We would think, oh yeah, this, that's the strongest person. That's strongest person. The strongest person is going to win the fight. Doesn't always happen that way. You may have somebody that's very strong. You're thinking that guy's way stronger. He is going to knock that guy out in the first round. And what happens? He accidentally drops his guard and this less experienced person clips him. And all of a sudden, the strongest, best fighter doesn't win the fight. And sometimes life unfolds this way. He says, sometimes the wisest people don't always become the most wealthy and rich. Sometimes the most talented people don't always succeed and get every position. Sometimes there are other factors, right? <laughs> because life on this earth is something that we don't have complete control of. Circumstances, certain things interrupt. And what seems at times like things should go a certain way where you're thinking, man, there's a clear advantage. Of course this is going to work out, or of course that person's going to succeed, or of course this person's going to advance. Or, and, and we think, that's got to go that way. And then the tables get turned, and what we expected to work out a certain way does not work out that way. And here's the more challenging part. And we don't have no explanation for it. And it's just part of the way life unfolds. You know, they were interviewing, I believe it was uh, Getty, was he the right the oil guy from years ago? I mean, just became an incredibly wealthy man. Uh, and they asked him, so, so tell us, as someone who's, I mean, accrued incredible wealth, such success in business, what is the key to success? And his answer was this, some men find oil, others don't. Boy, is that true? Some people find oil, and then other people that are doing the exact same stuff are 10 foot too far to the right, and they never strike oil, so they never get wealthy, they never succeed, and they fail and struggle, and they may have had just as much wisdom, knowledge, talent, and skill, and maybe they even had way bigger drills and way more money, but they just didn't find the oil, and Mr. Getty did. And I think sometimes we need to just reconcile in life that... Life on earth, you know, we probably heard it when we were kids, and maybe some of us have told it to our kids. Life on earth, it's, it's not fair. It's really not. And it's never going to be fair why the world is broken. So don't fight against that reality and be mad. Just keep going forward. Just keep going forward and keep moving forward. And don't let the confusion of what unfolds be something that distracts or stumbles you unnecessarily overthinking things. He says, verse 12, for the man also does know his time like a fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared. The idea is caught, trapped in misfortune in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So again, he's talking about this kind of this other connecting piece to what we just talked about. We never know if some cruel misfortune is going to arise. The whole flock of birds goes flying, one of them gets caught in the net, right? A bunch of fish are swimming around, one fish gets captured, the other ones all get away free. And again, no one necessarily always understands how those misfortunes happen. And as human beings, we know as we live on this earth, we never know. We don't. We never know if some cruel misfortune is going to come into our earthly life. We, we never kind of know what bullet, let's say, has our name on it. We never know if there's going to some catastrophic, hard calamity 
that's going to befall us. We just kind of experience it. And we never have that assurance. We could do everything right, but we can never be presumptuous that everything is always going to be secure and that a calamity or misfortune is not going to come. We just navigate life. Here's the one thing that is secure, eternity. God's secure, eternity's secure. Nothing else on earth really is 100% secure for any one of us. And Solomon saw this, and it was frustrating, but just a, a, a reality that he came to terms with. He says, this wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. Verse 14, there was a little city with a few men in it, so very small, meager resources, and a great king came against it. So they are greatly outmatched by this king from another area. The city was besieged, and they built great snares around it. So it seemed impending doom was there. They were going to be conquered. Now there was found in that little city with little resources a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet, look, no one remembered that same poor man. So Solomon says, here's this city, had no resources, very small population, this massive army with a great powerful king from another territory comes. They lay siege to the city. It seems like it is absolute certain doom. And this poor little wise man comes up with some plan, some strategy that he proposes. And his wisdom is so great that the city is delivered by the wisdom that he shares as advice, and everyone, no doubt, is excited. Why? That little poor wise man, he's the hero. I mean, he just did something incredible. He is everybody's hero, but look what it says. Yet no one remembered him. He was the hero in one hour, and very shortly afterwards, his fame disappears. Human fame does not last long. It does not last long. Because human beings are fickle, and the novelty of some hero or some great person, boy, I tell you, as a human being, if you haven't discovered yet, may God help you to realize quickly, your novelty will wear off real quick, real quick. And, and as human beings, we're always looking for the upgrade. We're, we're like people who are infatuated with their iPhones, right? They just can't wait till the better model comes out. And, and like this man, I mean... He does this wonderful thing, this great thing, and very quickly he's forgotten. And I think of Jesus and his humility, just this, you know, wisdom, just, and he comes in all of his humanity, and people in one sense so excited for him, and then how quickly, sadly, even us, if we were to take it to our own hearts, how quickly, you know, Jesus, when he first saves us, man, he is our hero, right? And we are so excited. Lord, I can't believe what looked like clear destruction in my life. You delivered me. And we're so excited about his deliverance. And then sadly, what tends to happen? All of a sudden, we, we, we kind of start to lose the wonder of Jesus, right? And, and we start to forget him and disregard him. And we, we kind of lose that enthusiasm that we once had maybe when he was our great hero at one time, just like this man. Well, Solomon said, verse 16 through 18, then I said, wisdom is better than strength. And boy, that's a great point. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Now, he's still thinking about this poor wise man who delivered the city. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard, rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. 
Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So Solomon, seeing the outcome of that little poor man's wisdom that brought great victory and success, he tells us a few things, observations about wisdom in these verses here. One, he tells us that wisdom is a much better weapon than human strength, than authority. Solomon says, have human authority or have wisdom? Take wisdom. Have human power, have human strength where you can force and make things happen or you got great resources at your disposal. Solomon said, take wisdom. Wisdom is a much better weapon, he says, and it is better than strength. And, and sadly, though wisdom is such a wonderful thing, and though people should listen to wise advice to help them, they often dismiss wisdom very quickly, just like with this poor wise man. He says here, nevertheless, that poor man, verse 16, his wisdom is despised and his words aren't heard. You know, wisdom is so valuable, so beneficial, but how quickly people dismiss the value of wisdom. People try and share wisdom with one another. God shares wisdom from his word and how quickly people just despise wisdom and they blow off sound advice and good judgment and they just go do their own thing. And then they wonder why life becomes more difficult. He says, words of the wise spoken quietly. The idea is, again, not forcefully. He says, just spoken quietly in a common voice should be heard much more than some foolish ruler who's shouting and demanding that they be heard. He says, we should appreciate wisdom because wisdom is one of the greatest weapons, he says, of war. Look how he concludes verse 18, but one sinner, he says, destroys much good. Now, boy, that's a great statement. One sinner, that is one person who rebels against what's good and right, he says, one person doing wrong things can bring a whole lot of ruin. One sinner, he says, destroys, not a little bit, much good. And much good in this life can be destroyed by just one person sinning. That's all it takes. You want to give you the greatest example of that? Think about me if you would for a moment. The book of Genesis, a man named Adam. By one sinner, there was a lot of destruction of what God created. And what did God say when he created everything? It is good. It's good. It's good. Everything was really good. And one sinner ruined a whole bunch of good for the whole human race. Here's the glorious thing. And if you're a note taker, I would write into your Bible there, Romans chapter five, because in the same way that much good was ruined by one sinner, Adam, the Bible also tells us in Romans 5 that through one good man, one righteous act, the work of Jesus Christ, a whole lot of things that were ruined were restored and reconciled and brought back to good again. And now Jesus reversed all those things for us, how beautifully he's accomplished such. Let's look at a few verses of chapter 10 before we conclude. He says, dead flies, you'll remember this one, putrefy the perfumer's ointment. The idea is they cause it to decay or become defiled. And give off a foul odor, again, as the fly would get into the ointment and then it would die and the, you know, just the decaying and the spoiling of the perfume, the ointment, something that was meant to be beneficial, something that was meant to be helpful as they would utilize these perfumes and these ointments in the culture. Now it, it's, it's ruined. It gives a foul odor. It's lost its effectiveness. 
he says, so does a little folly. And circle that word there, little. He doesn't even say it takes great folly. So does a little folly, just a little bit of foolishness, a small mistake, to one who's respected for wisdom and honor. In other words, he's describing here just like that small little fly can ruin that whole batch of ointment that was beneficial and useful. He says just one foolish act. That's all it takes. One foolish act. One moment of sinful rebellion can create, he describes to the man who was known for great respect and wisdom and honor, in an instant can bring great loss of respect. He says, to one who was known and respected for wisdom and honor, just a little folly can eradicate that very quickly. And boy, we have perhaps all of us either maybe one experienced that or maybe seen that, and how sad that is. You know, it takes, does it not, folks, a lot to build credibility with people, to earn people's respect, to cause people to respect you and to honor you and to see you as a respectful person and, and someone who can have influence upon others and speak. And, and how sad, he says, that when we have the respect of people, it can take a long time to earn that and with one simple foolish mistake or grievous sinful error, how we can destroy our respect with people and lose that honor that we once had. Boy, just certainly such a true statement. It's very sad when it happens and something we should really want to be on guard about to be very careful that we don't end up behaving foolishly and ruining the respect and the influence that we have upon people currently. Verse 2, he says, a wise man's heart is at his right hand. Again, the right hand was always the hand of strength or favor, but a fool's heart is at his left hand. So the person with wisdom, Solomon says, is operating that wisdom in their heart, and that gives them added strength, like the strength of the right hand, where the person who's foolish in heart will find this to become a great weakness in their life. The left hand was perceived as the weaker hand as far as battle. Right hand was always the hand of favor, the right hand of the king. Verse uh, 3, even when a fool walks along his way, he lacks wisdom and shows everyone that he is a fool. So even if someone who is foolish tries to act apart, they try and hide it, they try and act like they're not foolish, maybe they're trying to play the part in some way. He says, eventually, that foolishness is going to show up in their behavior. Eventually, it's going to evidence itself there. He says, even when a fool walks along the way, he lacks wisdom because he doesn't have it, and he shows everyone, look what he says, shows everyone that he is a fool. So, important, I think, to recognize, especially as we're interacting with people and we're in relationships with people, sometimes people can play a good part. But that's why you take time to get to know people. Because people can say the right things. The fool can, for a season, maybe follow the right path and indicate you know, that they're, they're, they love God or they're living wisely or whatever. And, and people are great at sales. But he says, ultimately, the fool will show everyone their foolishness. So I think a great observation Solomon makes, and he reminds us, is take time to observe a life for a little while to see the real person. 
Look at what's going to happen when they're under pressure, when they make decisions, how they handle things, how someone truly lives. It will get walked out in time, just like the fool eventually. You can't hide that he's a fool. Eventually, it shows itself. Now, he says, verse 4, if the spirit of a ruler rises against you, the idea is someone who's your superior, a ruler, whether civil government or your employer, someone who has authority over you, if the spirit of that ruler, the one superiority or authority over you, rises against you, something happens, they're angry or upset with you, do not leave your post. The idea is don't quit. Don't go run away. Don't throw a huff and a temper tantrum and, oh, they were really hard on me. And, and, and just, look, if, if something happens and someone who's a superior in your life is harsh or they, you know, let you know they're not pleased with you or they're upset with you, he says, don't leave your post. For consolation, the idea is a calm, peacemaking attitude pacifies great offenses. So, again, what's the wisdom there is he says, look, if things get tough with someone who's a superior person in your life, they have a degree of authority over your life, they, they hold that type of a role of a, you know, someone of a, a supervisor or whatever it may be, or maybe it's you know, a, a parent's authority in the home or the authority of a husband, or I mean, all the different ways of authority. He says, look, just because things get tense in the relationship, don't go running away. That's not the solution. Don't quit. Don't leave your post. Don't run off in a temper tantrum. Well, no, I'm taking my toys. You know, I'm going home. He says, no, that's immature. Have a calm, peaceful attitude. Be a peacemaker and look for a way through conciliation to pacify the offense. The idea is stick it out and make it right. Don't run away. Stick it out and make it right. That's how people grow. And too many times, you know, we, we fail to grow in this life because rather than working through our problems or reconciling our problems or resolving our problems, we opt for relief rather than resolution. And that's very foolish. Our natural tendency is always want relief. Oh, things are tough. Things are tense. Things are difficult. I, I, and we just opt for relief. That's, that's leaving your post, running away. But we don't want relief. We should want resolution, where things get resolved, things get fixed, things can get restored. And, and again, that, that's many times how relationships grow stronger as you work through issues together. And, and you develop a deeper bond because you realize, okay, we had a moment there, but, but we're bigger than that. And, and, and our relationship is more important than that. And again, it, it causes us to grow depth and to grow maturity in all of our lives when we do those things. So again, perhaps a, an encouragement even for you, or maybe something as a word from the Lord, if you're finding yourself tempted because something has gotten difficult to just leave your post and to go running off. I'd pray about that. Take your time with that. I'm not saying there's not a time to depart if God's legitimately leading you on. But make sure God's moving you on and you're not running away. Those are two completely different things. Why don't we stop there for tonight? We'll stand and...